0: Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city.
1: Auckland Conversations, for those of you who haven't been to one before, provide an opportunity to inspire and to stimulate your thinking about the challenges and, of course, the opportunities facing Auckland. For tonight's conversation, we are thrilled to welcome Stephen Chung, Executive Vice President of the Los Angeles Economic Development Corporation. And after Stephen has spoken, he will be joined in a panel discussion by two of our local experts, Nick Hill from ATED and Tony Alexander from BNZ. They will be talking about how we can best share the prosperity generated by Auckland's economic growth. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. This is a fantastic turnout on a lovely Auckland evening. And a warm welcome as well for those of us uh, joining from the virtual world, watching online on the Auckland Conversations website. Now, of course, I need to start with a few housekeeping notes. In the unlikely event of an emergency, an alarm will sound. We will be directed out of the building by our ushers. Bathrooms are located at the back of the venue near the networking table on the, the left there. And finally, could you please take a moment to turn your phones to silent don't put them away altogether because we would love to have some tweets from tonight's I'm sure stimulating and fascinating discussion. Now of course we can't start the conversation without thanking our generous sponsors. We would like to warmly thank ATED, our partner for this event, with the support of BNZ and our thanks go also to our Auckland partner, South Base Construction, our design partner Resene and all of our program supporters. Now, tonight's format will be a keynote speech from Stephen Chung, followed by the discussion with the panellists. But then it will be your turn. We would love to have your questions to get this conversation going. We'll be using the online tool Slido. Now, if you haven't come across it before and have a smartphone, please visit slido.com, enter the event code, which is #Prosperity and simply type in your question. It's as easy as that. And you can submit your questions at any point during tonight's discussion. I will then be drawing from those questions to, to put to our panel. Alternatively, of course, if you're a little bit more analogue, you can just raise your hand when we come to the interactive Q&A session. Now, you're also very welcome, as I said, to tweet out during the evening, and the hashtag that we're using is AKL Conversations. Hashtag AKL conversations. Now, as is appropriate for, a, for an event on um, sharing prosperity, we always try to ensure that the Auckland Conversations events are inclusive and accessible. So our Auckland Conversations website will provide on-demand viewing of the event, a full transcript and captioning of the event and presentations in the next few days. So that's all the boring stuff out of the way. And now we get to the real gold of this evening, our conversation. Now, as we all know, as as fervent Aucklanders, Auckland is a vibrant, internationally connected and growing city. But of course, while economic development brings with it benefits, it can also have challenges as well. Development can be uneven, inequality can widen, and we can even see economic and social marginalisation emerging. So the question for us tonight is how do we meet these challenges? How do we increase living standards for all of Auckland's communities and citizens? How will our jobs and indeed the economy overall change in the face of economic growth and those societal challenges that may come along with it? How do we ensure that prosperity can be sustained and sustainable as well as inclusive? Now, these are some pretty weighty questions for a a Tuesday evening in Auckland, Um, but we're here tonight to start a conversation to try to find some answers. And we're very fortunate in launching that conversation to be able to hear from one of the great thought leaders in this space, um, as I mentioned, Stephen Chung. Now, Stephen is from our great sister city of Los Angeles and we're lucky that he's been in Auckland for the last couple of days for the Tripartite Alliance discussions, alongside of course his colleagues from Los Angeles, but also Guangzhou over the last couple of days. So I hope that he has enjoyed the best of multicultural Auckland um, while he's been here. And uh, without further ado... I would like to welcome him to the stage, but let me just tell you a few things about Stephen first, because you'll join me, I think, in feeling very impressed at the pedigree of his his thoughts. So Stephen Chung is the Executive Vice President of the Los Angeles Economic Development Corporation. He's also the President of World Trade Center Los Angeles. In those roles, Stephen leads investment attraction to the LA County region and facilitates the movement of new businesses, projects and deals from both international and US investors into the region. He also supports international trade and connections for organizations based in LA County. Prior to that role, Stephen was the Secretary General of International Trade and Foreign Affairs for Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. He was responsible for managing policies and programs related to the port, airports, international affairs and global trade. And he organized international trade missions to Mexico, China, Korea and Japan. Stephen also implemented the city's strategic plan to make Los Angeles a global capital of clean technology. That involved working with key partners to build the infrastructure necessary to support research, development and manufacturing. Stephen has also served as the Director of International Trade for the Port of Los Angeles, which is, of course, the busiest container port in North America. He was responsible for developing programs to increase trade, facilitate goods, and he currently sits on the board of advisors of UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs and Sister Cities of Los Angeles, as well as a number of other roles, including sitting on LA Metro's Sustainability Council and BizFed's International Trade Committee. Now, Stephen was born in Hong Kong and grew up in Los Angeles, where he received both his Bachelor of Arts in Psychobiology and Master of Arts in Social Welfare from UCLA. He is fluent in both Mandarin and Cantonese, and we are very lucky to have such a, a talented person with us tonight. Please join me in welcoming Stephen to the stage.
2: Thank you, Stephanie, for that warm introduction. And thank you, Auckland uh, Council, for the invitation to be here in Auckland. It's been a wonderful experience being back in Auckland again. So, tonight, um, let's start by really becoming an Aucklander. So, tenakoto, 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 katoa. No Los Angeles aho, ko chung te ko Stephen aho, kanui te mihi, kia koto, tenakoto, 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 katoa. Florida. Thank you. Tonight we want to talk about economic growth in a global city and what that means for global cities like Los Angeles and Auckland. And when you look, look at economic opportunities and economic growth, sometimes it's not all just positive. It comes with sometimes disparity, socio-economic uh, marginalization of certain industries and certain populations as well. What can we do? as a metropolis and as a region to increase inclusive, inclusive growth, and specifically, how do we use innovation to address major issues and potentials like climate change, job creation, international business engagements, and homelessness? So I want to share and maybe overshare a little bit some of the things that we've done in Los Angeles to give you a bit of context and background. And we're going to be sharing a lot, actually, the good, the bad, and the ugly about Los Angeles so that we can really learn from each other and set the context for the conversation later on. And to do that, let me step back a little bit and really give you an, an overview of Los Angeles because I think there's a lot of misconception about Los Angeles. And after that, I think we can really have a true conversation about what economic prosperity means for all of us. Now, many of you know Los Angeles is in California, but some of you don't know the size. So when I say Los Angeles, what, is this, what are some of the things that you guys think about immediately? From the audience, anybody? Hollywood. Hollywood. Usually, what we hear around the, the the world when I say, "What do you think about Los Angeles?" they say, "Hollywood, Hollywood, traffic, Hollywood." That's what they know about Los Angeles. But there's so much more, and today you're going to find out uh, a lot more about it. So. This is the geography of Los Angeles. When you think of Los Angeles, you actually just think about Los Angeles City, which is the second largest city in the United States, with about 4 million people living there. That's a dark green section right in the middle. But when you think about Los Angeles, you also already know many of the great cities that are there. Beverly Hills, Santa Monica, uh, Long Beach, Pasadena. These are actually all separate cities. Combined together, 88 cities make up the Los Angeles County region. And when you guys come to Los Angeles, a lot of people come come to us immediately and say, Stephen, I'm so excited to be here, I want to go to Disneyland. And I have to let them know, sorry, Disneyland is not in LA, it's in Orange County, it's in Anaheim. But really, when people are coming to Los Angeles, they're talking about the greater Los Angeles region, which is five counties combined together, Ventura, Los Angeles, San Bernardino, Riverside, and Orange. So in context, if you go back to what we just showed you, You're really talking about a region that goes from the Pacific Ocean all the way over to Nevada and Arizona, from Santa Barbara all the way down to San Diego. It's a massive region that's the home to a population that's quite large. Five counties, 190 cities, over 100 incorporated areas, and 34,000 square miles. Los Angeles County alone, we have... 10.2 million people living in LA County alone. The greater Los Angeles region is actually 18.7 million people. And the strength of our economy is our people. Our people is diverse. We have over 224 different languages spoken right in Los Angeles, and Los Angeles is known as the most diverse location in the history of humankind because you have all these nationalities combined together in one single location, so much so that all these countries are actually paying a lot of attention to Los Angeles, and this is key to Auckland later on as well. Uh, We have over 100 consulates located in Los Angeles, and this makes Los Angeles the world's third largest concentration of consulates after New York and after Hong Kong. Combined together, what you see is that this population, this map represents all the other states in the United States that have a smaller population than Los Angeles County. Only seven states, including California, have a bigger population than us. So Los Angeles is really the size of a small nation. In fact, if you look at our GDP last year, our GDP was $807 billion, Los Angeles County alone. So if we were a country, we would be the 19th or 20th largest economy in the world, larger than that of Belgium, Saudi Arabia, and many other countries. And if you combine the five counties together, our GDP is now at $1.2 trillion, tied with Mexico as the 15th largest economy in the world. We're not just any city. We're a mega region. And we're able to do so because of the infrastructure, industry, and the talent that we've created over the many centuries that we've been around. So let me talk about uh, a a couple of the industries that really make Los Angeles what what we are, and actually some of the shared issues and some of the shared um, potential that we have between Auckland and Los Angeles as well. Los Angeles um, has the number one and number two container ports in North America, the Port of Los Angeles and Port of Long Beach. Combined together, we move about 17.5 million TEUs. TEU stands for 20-foot equivalent units. These are the 20-foot boxes that you see out there. And Los Angeles, um, if you look at the world port ranking, combined together, we're actually uh, the ninth largest port complex in the world. And it's because not only of our geographic position um, uh, in relations to Asia Pacific, but it's because we also have the infrastructure for it. We have over 100 trains that come in and out of Los Angeles every single day. We have over 1.5 billion square feet of warehouse and distribution space around 100 miles of the Los Angeles region, and we have over one, uh, sorry, 10,000 trucks to move these cargo back and forth to uh, and from the distribution centers. So breaking down a little bit, if you look uh, at just the map, the top ports around the world, you'll see that China is dominating because as the manufacturing center of the world, really, for many years, um, they are producing a lot of the goods that we are consuming. And they use Los Angeles as a gateway because you can see how easy it is for them to get to Los Angeles than how easily it is to get to the rest of the United States. So like Auckland, Los Angeles is the gateway to their nation. The other thing about international trade you have to look at is also air cargo and air traffic as well. LAX is now the nation's number two airport. But the reason why we're number two is because some of the other airports are actually counting, they're double counting. When passengers get there, they transfer and they go to another location and they count that as well. If you look at just people getting on and off a plane, origin and destination. LA is now the number one origin and destination airport in the United States, with over 85, 87.5 million passengers a year, and they carry over $100 billion worth of goods coming into this region. You can see that we reach over 188 uh, different cities with over 130,000 uh, flights every year. So we really reach the rest of the world, and this is really important for international trade. Okay. I'm going to try. There we go. Now, we're going to focus a little bit on the various industries that are in Los Angeles that make Los Angeles who we are. So first, tourism. I'll, uh, related to um, uh, LAX, Los Angeles just reached a new mob zone. 50 million passengers, uh, 50 million visitors came to Los Angeles last year, and total in total they spent about 24 billion dollars to the local economy. And you can see China is a, a major player for us. Last year, 2017, actually we went up in 2018 to 1.2 million. We're the first city in the United States to have over 1 million visitors coming from China. And Mexico is actually a much larger number uh, because of the proximity. But we actually count the overseas direct nonstop flight, and I, we used to over overseas as a measurement because we actually generate more economic impact when it's an overseas flight. The second thing is a lot of people don't know. Like I was mentioning before, people think of Los Angeles and they think of Hollywood, 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 traffic, Hollywood. But we're actually also the number one manufacturing center in the United States with over 350,000 jobs. That's right. Not Detroit not the Rust Belt. Los Angeles has more manufacturing jobs than anywhere else in the United States. What do we manufacture? We manufacture a bit of everything, in fact, uh, from aerospace and uh, and component parts. You have uh, automobiles uh, and automobile parts, and you have fabric. In fact, uh, Los Angeles is actually the high-end denim manufacturer and designer of the world. So if you're buying your $300 jeans or $700 jeans, it's actually designed and manufactured in Los Angeles. The other thing is people think about entertainment in Hollywood, right? You guys mentioned Hollywood first. Hollywood is actually only our third largest industry. Traditionally, we have great um, companies like... Warner Brothers or Disney, but right now we're seeing transformation, we're seeing a lot more digital media, so Amazon, Amazon Studios, Netflix, and also gaming and, and uh, esports are coming into Los Angeles strong, Activision, Blizzard, and Riot Games, Hulu, they're all coming into Los Angeles and creating a completely different paradigm that we've never seen before. With that, we're now seeing another transformation in the Los Angeles region, a traditionally manufacturing-based uh, town, we're now moving into the new high-tech sector. Our startup ecosystem is building very quickly. Most of the folks, when they think of tech, immediately they think of Silicon Valley. What if I told you that Los Angeles actually has more high-tech jobs in Silicon Valley? Now, Silicon Valley is uh, doing very well, but the thing is they're becoming so expensive. A lot of these companies and a lot of these venture capital groups are coming directly into Los Angeles. That's why our Silicon Beach area is growing very quickly with over 8,000 startups and over 200 uh, VC firms supported by Excel accelerators, incubators, and universities. And you can see just a a map of downtown Los Angeles and around the west side where Silicon Beach is located. Companies like SpaceX, Ring, um, Virgin Hyperloop, Snapchat, they're all located and born and created out of Los Angeles because of the ecosystem that we built. Besides some of the traditional industry, we're growing these new industry clusters, and it's becoming the future of what we need to look at when it comes to job creation. I'm gonna highlight just about five of them. Clean technology. Los Angeles and California has been known around the world as having some of the most stringent, if not the most stringent environmental regulations in the world. Some companies feel that this is a detriment, but for us in Los Angeles, we embrace it. We actually created a brand new industry to drive new innovation and new technology to be developed in Los Angeles so that it can serve the needs of our region. Then we export these products internationally. Advanced transportation is much, much needed. As we mentioned, traffic is one of the huge, most important issues that we're facing. And we're not just going to sit there and be okay with it. In fact, last year, the county of Los Angeles passed a new tax sales tax measure called Measure M, where we're going to be uh, doing a half-penny sales tax for every transaction that goes through Los Angeles. So in the next 30, 40 years, we'll be collecting over $120 billion just on transportation project in Los Angeles County. This is the largest infrastructure and transportation project in the history of the united states that will be dedicated just to la county and let's be honest most of these funds will be spent in the next nine years before we host our next 2028 olympic games los angeles will be the home uh, to the 2028 olympic games so we'll be hosting this Olymp- olympic games for the third time so, with that said, we're also creating other industries and, and uh, enhancing other industries as well. Aerospace and defense industry has been around Los Angeles for, for many, many years, but now we're seeing a transformation as well. It's no lar- longer about um, aviation and uh, aeronautics, it's actually about space exploration. SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, they're now launching rockets and... Uh, uh, these uh, shuttles to have passengers go out in space and come back. Um, It will be announced, I believe, shortly, that there will be a a space performance of a concert uh, that's going to be done by a a, a very famous uh, female performer. I can't name who yet, but you've seen her recently in the movie that's going to be very well received. So she's going to be the first woman performer in space. So these things are happening because of the synergy uh, between the various industries that are happening in the Los Angeles region. Bioscience, we have more bioscience jobs in Boston or San Diego, and high-tech, as I was mentioning before, now we've overtaken uh, Boston or Silicon Valley as having more of these high-tech jobs. Combined together, these industries are really supported because of our education institutions that have really created the talent that's necessary. Los Angeles is the only region in the United States to have three top 25 world-ranking universities. Caltech is now the world's number one research university. UCLA is the number one public university in the United States. And USC is also one of the top 20 universities in the United States. Combined together with 115 other higher education institutions, we graduate more than 1,500 PhDs, 5, 1,500 engineers, 1. 1.3 million graduates, and also 3,500 patents come out from our region on a yearly basis. So education is really at the very basis of what we do. And because of everything that's happened in Los Angeles, you see internationally everybody's coming to Los Angeles because they want a piece of this pie. And We're delighted to announce that uh, we do an annual report at the World Trade Center Los Angeles. This is last year's report. We'll be releasing our report in two weeks at our uh, next Select LA Investment Summit. Uh, the numbers are pretty much similar, but we have over 10,000 foreign-owned establishments in Southern California, creating over 420,000 direct jobs. Every year, they pay over $26 uh, billion to our local economy. So international trade, despite what some of the redics are happening around D.C., is actually creating really good jobs, because most international companies coming into Los Angeles and America, they're actually paying about 15% more than uh, the average company in the United States. So, this is a quick summary of what's happening around the Los Angeles region, and I want to talk a little bit about some of the programs that we've created um, in Los Angeles so you can get a sense of how we're using some of the innovative approaches and policies in order for us to drive um, change and to make sure that the prosperity is actually shared by more than just uh, one section of the economy. So when it comes to climate change, we're mentioning a couple of the major issues that we want to address. Climate change. In the United States, uh, President Trump walked away from the Paris Climate Agreement uh, very quickly after he took the presidency. Immediately afterwards, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti and California Governor, Governor Brown, both said, regardless of what the, uh, what's happening in D.C., California and Los Angeles will adhere to the uh, Paris Climate Agreement on our own. And after that, Mayor Garcetti reached out to over 420 other mayors around uh, the, the the entire region and around the nation, actually, and got them to commit to the Climate Mayors Program, which means that they're going to basically all adhere to this climate uh, accord on their own, regardless of what the federal government's going to do. Now promises like these are great, but what are you going to do about it? So. The, the Los Angeles City actually launched a new green deal which include a commitment to being carbon neutral by 2050 in the entire Los Angeles region, which is a very tough goal to do. So one particular program that we can use, because you can talk about goals and standards, but how do you actually implement It's the Clean Air Action Plan and the Clean Truck Program adopted by this, uh, the Port of Los Angeles, again, the number one container port in North America, and the Port of Long Beach, the number two container port in North America. That program, what it did is basically it incentivizes private sector to get rid of their old dirty diesel trucks and replace them with cleaner trucks. And for every truck that you scrap, um, the, the Port of Los Angeles gave you a subsidy of $5,000 that they're going to destroy that truck so we know it's off the streets. Then they gave them $20,000 each to buy a brand new truck that's EPA compliant, Environmental Protection Agency compliant. So at that point, then you know that you're going to have a fleet of new trucks that are going to be emitting less pollution. Now, when you look at the port operation I was mentioning, 17.5 million TUs move through the port area every year. Those are a lot of truck and ships and uh, train trips. And what these trucks that are going back and forth is going along the heavy corridors, which means the soot is actually going directly into the na- neighborhoods. The American Lung Association did a research in the early 2000s and found that around the port area, the asthma rate of the children and the uh, residents that live around those port area is three times that of the national average. What we're doing now is we're subsidizing these cheap goods with the health of our citizens. So the, these programs are not just a financial program, but it's also a program for us to basically create change and, and really incentivize the private sector to change. So with this incentive, the private sector came in very quickly and put in additional money. Altogether, together, it's about three, four dollars million that ports put, put in and about $700 million that the private sector put in, a billion program, and within five years, we replaced all the old dirty truck and replaced them with all 2007 EPA compliant truck. This is back in about 2006 to, to 2008. In five years time, truck emission dropped by 95%, 95%. That has a direct impact on the health of the population, but this is a part where it's also very interesting. The private sector came in and all of a sudden realized that they can now market Los Angeles as a clean route. Walmart, Target can basically say, if you use the Port of Los Angeles and Port of Long Beach, you're now able to basically sh- uh, uh, propose this to the eco-conscious uh, consumers that want to use a clean route. So now it's now becoming the preferred way uh, to ship your goods and we're getting more market share. So it became a win-win situation that originally can be a, uh, a really dangerous situation for some. So that's the environmental side. Job creation. Job creation is a huge issue as we're dealing with artificial intelligence, with automation, replacing some of the traditional jobs that we have. What we want to do is create ecosystems. So the Los Angeles City and Los Angeles County, what they did is they looked at um, surplus property that they have that they weren't using anymore. Uh, Building a space and then leasing it out for a dollar a year to nonprofits that basically create an incubation system that supports clean technology or bioscience, industries that we know will pay a lot more money. With that, they also work with the community college districts and local education institution to do a workforce education program to help the next generation of children learning how to enter this market, they get their internship, then later on they have a full a uh, full-time job after they graduate from that program. So those are the programs that we're creating and working in partnership with public and private sectors as well. International business engagement is another area that we really want to focus on and I really want to highlight the tripartite economic alliance that started uh, really six years ago and this is our fifth year doing the uh, tripartites and this year we're here in Los Angeles. So we want to thank our friends at AT to really be this partner and this stimulus to bring Los Angeles and Guangzhou companies and companies from around the world to really look at what's here in Auckland and what are the potential for this business opportunities. We use a sister city agreement that's been uh, going on for a very long time and added an economic component to it, a promise that we're going to be looking at each other's industries that we like uh, and we're going to look at the shared prosperity and how do we work closely together to make sure that we all grow together. All three sister cities are going to be uh, uh, able to take advantage of the growth that's are happening in the various sector. And finally, as I'm talking about these macro level and it all sounds good and it's it sounds wonderful that we're able to address so many issues. But I mentioned to you, I'm going to give you the good, the bad, and the ugly of Los Angeles and some of the things that we did. The reality is that we're not able to address these issues for everybody. There are folks that are disenfranchised, they're underserved population, and their results are quite different. As I was telling you, you the number one status for all these major things that we're doing in Los Angeles. Did you know Los Angeles is also the number one homeless capital in the United States? We have over 50,000 homeless individuals any given day in Los Angeles. 50,000. That's the size of a city. And these are the issues that we can't just solve overnight. And so the city and the county passed a new measure to put in a billion dollars to address this issue. A billion dollars is a drop in the bucket to be able to solve this issue. It needs to be a comprehensive approach. That's why we're working with nonprofit sectors to do a wraparound service to provide mental health job training, drug counseling, and a number of different supportive services to really help transition. But it comes from also the lack of housing and the increased price of housing that's happening around Los Angeles. And we're f- facing some of the other, what some of the other cities are facing, like San Francisco. And I think these lessons can be shared, and I think there are a lot of similarities between what happened to Los Angeles and what's happening in Auckland. What we want to do is we want to share this information with our partners so that you can learn from us and you can leapfrog over some of the mistakes that we've main. But I think th- Talking about this is fantastic from a very high macro level, but I think what needs to happen is actually to get a better understanding from a micro level, because you need to know what happens to individuals and how these policies impact them. So to the point I was talking about, about oversharing a little bit, I'm going to share a little bit about my story and my background, and one of the the millions of stories that you see in Los Angeles, that gives you a good example of what Los Angeles truly is and the potential for these policies. So as Stephanie was saying earlier, I was born in Hong Kong, I immigrated to uh, the United States when I was about eight years old. We came from a middle-class family, my father owned an import-export uh, company, and also a film co- production company in Hong Kong. So when we moved to the United States, we're comfortable, we're, you know, uh, in the middle class, so we lived in a middle-class house and middle-class neighborhood. But it was very difficult as a Chinese immigrant um, that couldn't speak a lick of English to go into a new school and new environment. I remember I thought the word thank you was one word, so i go around for an entire year saying thank you, you, to everybody before someone corrected me after a year. And the other thing is my teacher would call me uh, Stefan because of the, the way I, I, pronoun- I, I spell my name. And I was too shy to correct her until the end of my first year to let her know that my name is actually Stephen. She was mortified, but you know, these are the, some of the challenges as an immigrant child that come to this region they have to adjust to. My school district was very kind. They saw that I was struggling with English, so they hired a Chinese tutor for me. And because um, the school didn't really know how to deal with uh, immigrants at that point, uh, I was one of three Chinese families in the neighborhood, so they got me a, a tutor, and this tutor showed up, and she looked at me, and she spoke Mandarin. I was born in Hong Kong, I only spoke Cantonese. She was from Taiwan. The school district didn't know the difference between Chinese people. With their good intention, uh, and inadvertently, they created even more of a barrier for me. So my second language is actually not English, is Mandarin. I was a bitter child that I have to learn another language before learning English. But now I'm very thankful because now I have another language in my pocket that I can communicate with the second largest economy in the world. But that was. Already difficult in terms of just a transition being an Asian American living in the United States and even in Los Angeles I face discrimination and racism that really we shouldn't be facing But what was really also challenging was that we're known as what they're called astronaut kids My father was going back and forth between Hong Kong and the United States doing business while we stayed there But over time we start noticing my father coming back less and less So my mother decided to surprise him in Hong Kong and she got the surprise because she found that he had another family My mother asked him to choose, and he chose, but he chose the other family. So out of nowhere, from a middle class family, we became uh, a family of a single uh, mother, monolingual single mother with three children. She couldn't afford to basically pay the mortgage. And the challenge of having being a monolingual um, uh, mother, single mother in in, in an environment that she doesn't know, she doesn't have a job, and she has to raise three children was just way too much. We ended up working in sweatshops. Uh, My mother was a seamstress sewing clothes, and my sister and I uh, would go after school. So for every shirt that you guys actually wear, someone has to sew it. But when you're done sewing, you have the extra string. So my sister and I would clip off all the uh, extra strings uh, for about half a penny per shirt. And so that's how we were able to raise ourselves, and it was very difficult. But over time, I got myself a job as a busboy, my mother uh, got herself a job as a waitress, and we moved on. And I was very fortunate because I got into a great great school at UCLA. It really gave me the opportunity to really challenge myself and learn. And so I um, delivered what I really needed to do as a good, dutiful Chinese son. And uh, so I was going to be a chemical engineer, except I didn't want to be a chemical engineer. So after two years, um, I told my mom, I said, look, I just want to let you know I can't deliver this for you. I know you said that if you're not an engineer, you're not um, a doctor or an attorney, you're nobody. So I am sorry, but I'm not going to be a dutiful child. And she said, Stephen, I've always said to you that I will support whatever you do which is a lie, by the way. Uh, and, uh, And she said, as long as you don't want to be a starving actor. And here I was with a portfolio to apply for the UCLA theater program behind my back. I scrapped that, I finished my education getting a degree in psychobiology because it was the closest degree I could finish without spending more time. With that experience, I really didn't know where I was going, but what I needed to do is work for, uh, work with people. So my my first job was actually uh, at a domestic violence shelter for women and children who are escaping domestic violence situation. And that was my career as a social worker for many years until I went back to school at UCLA to get my master's degree in social work. When I was done, I got addicted to policies. I start seeing that you can do policies and change lives, not just individuals, but you can change thousands and millions of lives. And I start working for the mayor of Los Angeles. He gave me the chance because as the first Latino mayor in over 100 years in Los Angeles, who was raised as a shoeshine with a single mother himself, overcoming all the obstacles, he looked at me, and he didn't look at my color of my skin, He just looked at whether I can work for him and how hard I was willing to work for him. And having the opportunity, I started learning about the Port of Los Angeles, international trade, the airport, and all these different issues. And Mayor Garcetti basically took me under his wing and allowed me to flourish as well. And then finally, about four years ago, I took over at the World Trade Center Los Angeles. This journey is really just one of many, many international stories that are happening in Los Angeles and around the world. And so going back to what I was saying earlier, the most important aspect of a global city, to me, is this openness to include, people that are different, with different viewpoints, and give them a chance. And it's really about building that infrastructure from a macro policy level to a meso structural level and to a micro personal level. Every aspect has to be there. If a city is willing to do that and able to do that, and they give a chance to, I don't know, a poor immigrant monolingual Chinese kid, maybe in about 30 years time, he will represent Los Angeles on the global stage and fight like hell for you. So I encourage Auckland to do also what Los Angeles has done to embrace that diversity that makes us different but what makes us great. And I think we can learn a lot from each other. Kira, thank you very much.
1: well thank you so much Stephen that was an inspiring uh, you know tribute to to the City of Los Angeles and the County of Los Angeles Um, we're going to give Stephen a few moments to catch his breath now while I invite our panel up to the stage Um, we are going to have our two Auckland experts um, and then Stephen can join as well so First of all, uh, to my right, we have Tony Alexander, who I'm sure many of you will know from media appearances and other other um, outreach that he's done. He is the Chief Economist of the Bank of New Zealand, one of our kind supporters this evening. And next to him, another face I'm sure you will all have seen before, Nick Hill, the Chief Executive of Auckland Tourism, Events and Economic Development and of course stephen uh, last but not least on stage there so i thought we could start our conversation off with a couple of questions to our our panelists um, and just see where it goes from there but just a reminder we would love to have your questions as well please do go to slido.com um, to put your questions <coughs> excuse me into into that device we would love to hear your uh, tricky questions for our panelists so Let's start with with those panellists. Tony, uh, I'm going to start with you first. Uh, I have a question here for you about something that I know is very close to your heart, um, which is about house prices. And I'm sure, being Aucklanders, we're all fascinated by what Tony will have to say to this question. Tony, is it reasonable for people to think that house prices relative to incomes in Auckland will go back to where they were pre-global financial crisis?
3: Nice, easy one to start. Yes, an easy one to start. Basically, I wrote the question for Stephanie to ask. Um, For those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm the economist who had the different view from all the other economists on the Auckland housing market, mainly from sort of 2008, but especially from about 2011, 2012. People could see prices were rising and were saying, some people are hurt by these prices rising, the rental yields are going down, uh, prices should go down, and therefore they uh, will go down. And I said, well, go back and do your basic economic analysis of looking at the growth and supply of housing which in 2011 was at the lowest uh, uh, level of production of houses in Auckland uh, nationwide in fact since the 1960s and look at the growth in the population which of course has accelerated tremendously um, over the past four to five years and I said I think the Auckland house prices will continue to rise so if you do have your cell phones there you can google Tony Alexander 19 reasons not 13 reasons for goodness sakes but 19 reasons and you'll find something I wrote in 2012 listing why house prices would rise. Um, The first version was 2011, but you can't probably find that. Now, many people simply don't, I guess, grasp that what we've seen with the house prices rising strongly is a permanent structural shift in house prices, in share prices in commercial property prices, reflecting a whole variety of things. And starting with assets generally, one of the biggest things that's happened over the past few years has been since the global financial crisis, inflation around the world has settled at a low level. Wages growth is simply not accelerating, even when unemployment rates fall tremendously. We have had the interest rates therefore turning out to be much lower than people were thinking. And while one might think it's good that a young person going out now and can come to the BNZ and get a three-year fixed rate special deal, 3.89% just for you um, at the moment, and that's surely good compared with the 18.5% I paid back in uh, 1987, I was better off back then than the low interest rate environment now. Because the low interest rates have been factored into the higher prices of all assets around the world, basically. And it's not just from the borrower point of view, it's from the investor's point of view. If you can't get yourself a decent yield any longer in bank term deposits or government bond yields, people have gone into these other assets, such as the shares, commercial property, and residential property um, as well. And it does not look likely at all that inflation is going to bump back up. The period from 1973, first oil price crisis, to 2007, the onset and after that of the global financial crisis, that was the aberration of high and variable inflation, high and variable interest rates. We're now back in the 1100s, the 1560s, of sustained low inflation and low interest rates. But there's more than that which explains the rise in house prices. These days, if you're buying a house, you always say, you need two incomes to afford a house. Well, 40 or 50 years ago, there was only one income bidding at the auction for a house. And the first families that had the partner also go out and enter the workforce, they could buy a better house. And so over the past four to five decades, the price of houses has gone structurally upward to reflect the fact that there are two people's incomes coming into the household who can afford to pay a house. These days, you buy a house, the toilet is on the inside. Previously, it was not necessarily, there's more than one bathroom. You have to meet energy efficiency standards, uh, seismic standards, consenting fees need to be paid, developers fees, hefty inspection fees, uh, uh, materials need to be tested, etc. We have an ageing population, and the older the population, the more houses you actually need for that number of people. Older people are divorcing later in life, and if you're 60 and you get divorced, you're probably not going to go flatting you're going to maybe still want your, your, your own house. In the late 1980s, we saw a change in New Zealand's migration rules, uh, away from source country to what skills, what education, etc. can you offer. And we've seen a permanent change in New Zealand's net migration flows. Now, this is a big one, and it's hugely relevant to Auckland in particular, because Auckland gets about a net maybe 55% of the migration flow in and out um, of New Zealand. And if you go back to the 10 years leading up to mm, uh, 1988, on average, each year in New Zealand, we lost 16,000 people. The 10 years to 1998, we gained about 9,000. 10 years to 2008, we gained about 11,000 people per annum. In the 10 years to 2018, on average we gained 29,000 people and we gained a net 56,000 people in the year to March of this year. And over the past four years, Auckland's population has grown about 11%, Rest New Zealand about 7%. And it is to Auckland that the migrants tend to come and the young people tend to stay as well. I've actually got a list of 13 reasons here as to why the prices have sort of structurally uh, gone up, I I sometimes go through. But the upshot is I don't see the migration flows reversing. I don't see suddenly the interest rates rising by five or um, 6%. I don't see uh, older people deciding, let's stick together even though we hate each other's guts and we'll stay in this one house. And I haven't even mentioned Airbnb and the houses taken out of the market for that. So this is a permanent repricing of the housing market. And what do I think happens now, just in case that's what people are interested in, Auckland, you're flat. You've been flat for two years, you'll probably stay flat for another two to four, and then the simple pressure of population growth exceeding what is accelerated growth in house construction will eventually push the prices up for a bit further. But for the moment, the market is flat, and it's going to stay that way for a while. Thank you for the question, Stephanie.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much, Tony. Well, we'll come back to that passion project of yours. Um, But before we do that, I'd like to hear from our other panellist, Nick Hill. Nick, if Auckland continues to grow the way that it has in the past, how will we ensure that everyone in all of our communities is able to share in its prosperity?
0: Um, Thanks, Stephanie. Um, When I gave you that question, um, I didn't realise it was sort of like solving world peace. Um, But I think, The way I'd like to start to try and answer it is maybe just to respond to Stephen's um, presentation about LA and contrast Auckland with that, and do that quite quickly if I could. I mean, I think you started saying you had uh, an economy of 900 billion um, per annum. 800. Um, So Auckland's economy is 90 at the moment. we, and if you think about infrastructure, you think about industry, and you think about people, um, we're very, very similar, as, as Stephen pointed out, to LA. We are a gateway to New Zealand, and uh, particularly through the airport in, the, in recent years, the connections with the rest of the world have grown, exponent- not exponentially, but hugely. There's 300 flights a week to different um, uh, airports in the world They're, the port itself has been growing significantly, I think it's one of two deep water ports in, in New Zealand, our digital connectedness um, has, has also advanced significantly and as Tony's just mentioned, you know, migration is through Auckland um, 40% of Aucklanders were not born in, in Auckland so in many ways we are a city that f- performs a similar role to L.A. We um, are changing very quickly. LA is a very young city. Um, Auckland is a young city. We're at the cusp of enormous um, growth and change. We've, We've come a long way in the last 10 years, but when we look forward to the next 10, we're talking about 50 billion of infrastructure investment in the city. And when you layer over the migration patterns, you layer over the impact of technology, Uh, and the future of work, we're going to look extremely different in 10 years' time. In terms of industry structure, also similar to L.A., um, there there is a large amount of manufacturing in Auckland, food and beverage, for example. A a large part of New Zealand's food and beverage manufacturing actually happens in Auckland. Uh, So, too, um, our screen sector. Um, We're not Hollywood, but our screen sector is a billion dollars a year, employs 7,000 people, and it's currently developing very, very fast off the back of the likes of video on demand through Netflix and so on. Uh, in terms of people, and you talked about the um, the, uh, uh, the universities, UCLA, uh, and uh, your other uh, tertiary institutions in uh, in LA, uh, we too have. Um, universities, tertiary training and so on. That's a supply of talent to, to Auckland. So in many ways we're very similar. I think also the diversity of Auckland and your own story. I think we could probably find many of those same stories in this room and certainly in the city. Uh, I think uh, some Learner Journal recently described or found Auckland was the fourth most diverse city in the world, we, we have an incredibly diverse population. I think one thing, um, where we, may, we differ from uh, LA, I, I think is that we um, have a, an issue around scale and distance. I mean, it's not a, this is not um, uh, new or profound, we all know this, but it does mean we as a, as a city and the markets that we operate in New Zealand, um, are a lot smaller, and that has consequences. We, are not, we cannot be as dynamic. We cannot specialise and, and build um, industries out of Auckland in the way that perhaps you can in LA. So that scale advantage is challenging for us. I think with our markets, and I think if you look at the construction sector, for example, uh, it, in many ways it's a model that's broken, but partly that's a function of being a small country and how you manage risk, and with the fact that we load liability onto our councils who then have high, high standards. They, those standards then exclude people. We have a small building materials industry of two dominant players. And suddenly our cost structures are enormously high compared to our neighbours in Australia. So the size and scale of New Zealand is different. I think one great strength we have in New Zealand, and it's become really apparent uh, uh, just in the last couple of days as we've hosted tripartite um, with guests from LA and from Guangzhou in China and that is the fact that we're a bicultural country and that our uh, Maori, Pacifica, um, uh, iwi um, actually help leaven and help provide values that when we look to the future and the challenges we face globally but also within business and within economies and jobs and and, and um, you know, developing, provide us with some, some pretty sturdy, longer term foundations that are universal, resonant, unique, and um, help to resonate with um, the rest of the world, but who, who go to our identity. So I'm gonna finish shortly, but part of the answer to prosperity fu- is fundamentally about why people would want to come to this place, why they would invest money, time, their careers, their reputations, bring their children up here, develop businesses, why would you do that? And it's answering that question that I think um, will help guide us to, to you know, the, the creating prosperity and, and sharing it more widely within the city.
1: Thank you so much, Nick. Well, I have a a couple of questions that have come out of these three fantastic sets of remarks today, if I may. Um, And I'd I'd like to start off actually um, with with both Tony and Stephen, because we've heard a lot from Tony about housing, the housing crisis, house prices. Although they're flat, a lot of people, you know, have a lot of trouble being able to afford a house. Um, Stephen you've talked about the homelessness challenges in LA but I know that there's also been a this real challenge on affordable housing as well so are there any lessons that you could share with us you know what what could Auckland be doing to create more affordable housing is it about intensification is it infrastructure you know what's the answer
2: over the last I would say uh, 20 years or so we realized um, actually longer than that. We realized we made huge mistakes back in 1920s. <laughs> um, we had the world's most advanced public transportation system called the Red Line that connected everywhere in Los Angeles uh, at that point point. and when the automobile sector, uh, the tire manufacturer and the real estate uh, uh, folks came together, they wanted to present this uh, tropical paradise of Santa Monica, where you can drive on these huge freeways and your Cadillac to these great homes and they ripped out all the tracks. And so we've been catching up since because we just created the traffic issue that we cannot resolve. What we see now, the solution, is transit-oriented design. You need to build density housing around major transit corridor that connect the work, uh, the, this concentration of where the workplaces are. Um, that's the solution. So we're now playing catch-up because we had this enormous sprawl. Uh, you saw the geography of Los Angeles, so it's available for them to basically keep on expanding, expanding. So you can be outside the density, cheaper homes, but certain point they're no longer cheap and now you just have a massive area where everybody's driving into downtown and in santa monica in the morning and the 405 freeway which is known uh, around the world as the worst freeway in the united states year after year after year we spent a billion dollars and over a year to expand that freeway by a lane to increase capacity and as soon as it's open traffic got worse by 1%. (laughs) So now we know it has to be public transit, uh, and it has to be transit-oriented design. I think that's something to consider, uh, and I I think many other cities around the world are looking at it.
1: Tony, I know you love infrastructure almost as much as talking about housing, so would you like to to comment?
3: Yeah, well Auckland is most definitely playing catch-up as well, and the problem for Auckland is that uh, none of you are going to be marching up to your councillors and say, Sales tax, I saw this guy talk about a sales tax, the idea, let's have one especially in Auckland where I'll pay an extra 5% on everything I buy in Auckland in order then, uh, that we can improve the motorway system or the public transit uh, system. Just think how disgruntled you already are about the uh, petrol levy, the special legislation which was required to that. And a key difference you'll find between the the cities in um, New Zealand, and especially in America, and a lot of the rest of the world, is that the ability of the council here to raise money is extremely limited. Overseas, cities have a whole range of options, income taxes, sales taxes, um, um, property taxes, etc., which are simply not available here. And what that's allowed overseas is cities to focus on their growth in terms of, we're going to grow and we are actively competing against other cities to grow as well, and so we're going to invest ahead of time the best we can for the public transport systems, the housing locations, etc, et maybe creation of industrial parks, transport infrastructure facilities, because we want to drag business out of, uh, out, out of other cities. Now, that's never been the case in New Zealand. Nobody in Auckland is seriously thinking of, I'm going to do something which is going to attract business out of uh, Omaru or out of, uh, out of Whangarei. Some may move, the attraction, of course, in the minds of many people is let's try and get it out of Auckland um, the other way. But the focus on Auckland, of Auckland has never really been we really need to position ourselves with affordable housing, et cetera, in order to attract population in here. And of course, hearing that, you'll be thinking, "But Auckland's attracting population anyway, so there's really no effort required um, in order to do that." And I'd love to give you a, pop, uh, a positive message of saying, "I think with a bit of extra planning, there everything's okay." No, 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 it's going to get phenomenally worse for you, poor beggars, that are commuting into the city every day. I think your transit times are going to slow down any further, even further, because the money is simply not there in order to develop the uh, uh, system as quickly as possible. And I think maybe there's a little bit of honesty required here when that people are trying to sell the idea of the light rail system between, um, say, Queen Street and out to the uh, airport. It's, uh, what, 20 kilometres long, maybe 19 stops along the way as a possibility. Same as the existing light rail system across on the Gold Coast. It takes 45 minutes to go from one end to the other. So don't try and sell it to me as a quick way of getting to the airport. I take Skybus when I've got the time. It really is the route along which the city has to intensify along Dominion Road or wherever. And people need to honestly come out and say, we have to override the interests of the existing people along that transit route, and there will be big intensification of housing along there, because that's the only way you can maybe make a little bit of a dent towards affordable housing. But seriously, I don't think there'll be a, a substantial change. Stephanie.
1: Well, I can see that's provoked a few uh, questions from the audience. We will come back to you in a second, but I just wanted to ask one thing of Nick. Um, So please keep those questions in your minds, um, because I'd just like to pick up on a couple of things that have been said about the need for more capital inflows, essentially, more investment to be able to fund this much needed infrastructure. So Nick, I mean, you talked about the challenges of, of scale and so on in New Zealand. How do we keep attracting investment into Auckland to fund, I mean, this this growth that we need to be able to afford all these sort of broader inclusive elements for our societies and our communities? What's the answer there?
0: Um, Well, there's probably a few things, but just first of all, can I um, uh, um, support what Tony said? I think more than 90% of all public money is raised through central government which is then controlled through the political processes and bureaucracy of Wellington, which is making decisions about Auckland. And the prevailing view of Auckland um, in Wellington is that we're helping you solve your problems in Auckland. It's not thinking about Auckland as this is fundamental to the economic success of New Zealand, and that the natural drivers and incentives are towards urbanization and cities competing around the world for people, and for capital. So part of it is, I think, a pretty fundamental shift in the perception of what the role that Auckland plays in the country. And I think we're paying the price for being somewhat arrogant about the rest of the country calling us Jaffers and they're basically responding. And I think that we need a more mature view about what that relationship uh, is with um, with. Uh, Uh, Auckland. Probably the second thing I'd say is that um, we're actually a, a very closely held country from an asset point of view. Actually finding things for people to invest in in Auckland is extraordinarily hard. There are lots of people and there's plenty of capital available. It's not the lack of capital, maybe apart from some parts of startup, that is the problem. The problem is where do we invest? So I think partly it is comes back to a lot of uh, assets being held uh, in public ownership in some form or other, or else in trust-type ownerships and so on. So I think there is an issue there. I think a third, a third area um, which we particularly want to attract is smart FDI, where global corporates, smart investors, talented. Uh, investor migrants are deciding to locate their businesses in Auckland. So how do we attract those people, those corporates, to be located here? Because it's their activity that will attract other talented people, support, educational enterprise, uh, and attract further investments. So I think there are probably a number of layers to this, but certainly I think fundamentally we've got a challenge around, uh, as Tony has pointed out about how we fund the necessary investment in infrastructure to advance the city.
2: Can I add, add one more component to that? Um, I wouldn't recommend that you guys go taxing even if you have the ability to do so because uh, California actually has some of the highest taxes in the nation, and every year we're losing a lot of business to other states and other regions that are using that <coughs> against us. So the only way for us to actually replenish the companies that are coming out is to really attract foreign direct investment coming in as a marketplace to enter, but it's becoming a huge challenge. And second, just because you build it, uh, unlike the freeway, you build it and they come, we build the public transit, and we spent um, billions of dollars on the light rail from um, downtown to Santa Monica to the beach. Uh, the ridership was actually not as as high as we expected because just because you build one line it still doesn't solve the entire issue so until the whole system is done we're not going to see that improvement and so traffic is still bad and people are impatient with the progress so although I gave you the the rosy picture again I promised you the good the bad and the ugly it's not as simple as simply taxing yourself and even if you, you could you might not want to
1: Can I pick up on something you said there, Stephen, about connecting communities? Because you also said something rather lovely in your remarks, the strength of our economy is our people. And I think that's true of, you know, this wonderfully diverse Auckland as well. But of course, we do also unfortunately have some underserved and some really struggling communities. So what has LA done or what lessons can you share with us about how to ensure that we move in the right direction on on reducing inequality rather than growing it on incorporating and enabling all of our communities to share in this growth that you know we would hopefully generate
2: yeah. it's uh, it's been a struggle and a challenge continuously for us uh, los angeles has a, a lot of glamorous history but some not so glamorous history includes the la riots uh, both in the in the 50s as well as in the 80s as well so it's been happened over and over again as an underlying issue based on income inequality disparity so what I would say is we there's a lot of um, programs that are created in order to encourage more uh, ethnic minority groups to run for office and to be elected to be represented that way that's why that that's when their voices are heard and they're also able to create programs or are structured through their community but through changes in the economy, gentrification is also coming in. When gentrification comes, also you change entire electoral map. So these changes are so quick and so fast that we're not really able to address all the issues. So we don't have a panacea. We don't have a solution that we can offer. What we can say is, I think what's worked for us is, uh, uh, as we're moving forward is having leadership. Um, take stance and encourage diversity. Uh, mayor Garcetti from Los Angeles has made a commitment that he is uh, the first mayor in the history of Los Angeles to have all his commissions staffed uh, and, and, and managed by over 51% female representation, which has never happened before. California now made a, a mandate that for all public boards, for companies, they have to have at least one female representative on the board of directors. So these are the, the policies that are made to encourage diversity when it comes to gender uh, equity uh, as well as racial diversity and and inclusion as well so one step at a time we're not quite there yet these are just some of the mistakes we've made along the way that hopefully you guys will see uh, maybe hopefully you can avoid as well
1: nick or tony would you like to to comment on that that sort of social inclusion issue or should we throw it open to some very patient audience members who I know will have uh, got some burning questions
0: for you. Uh, just briefly on the, the social inclusion issue. I mean, it, it, it's a huge challenge in Auckland. It's uh, getting worse. Uh, the future of work is gonna make it worse. I think we've got some real issues around how our labour market and education, um, our potentially immigration, how they come together and the decisions that are made around that. I think in New Zealand we've become very, very siloed. And uh, I think there's a real disconnect between secondary schools, uh, employers, training, uh, and the way that market is working in the city. And part of that goes down to infrastructure, but part of it goes down to some pretty, uh, sort of historic views about how that should work. Interesting.
1: Well, thank you very much for your patience. Uh, We would love to hear your question.
3: My question, uh,
1: actually comes... oh, great. Thanks. My question actually comes back to some of the infrastructure that we have to invest in, and uh, on a scale of one to 10, uh, A, Stephen, how important is it? And B, if we're not going to use taxes, you, you talked about FDIs, Foreign Direct Investment, so is that the only solution that you can come up with to actually build what we need to build?
2: For infrastructure, you mean? Yeah. Um, so I wanna separate it into public infrastructure and just regular infrastructure. Well, I'm talking
1: about transport. Got it. And uh, you know, making the city more efficient.
2: Yeah, so when it comes to foreign direct investment, when it comes to public infrastructure, it becomes a bit difficult for us in the United States um, because even though we, want, we think we're uh, a country of our own in Los Angeles and we would like to act like it, um, Washington D.C. disagrees. So there's something called CIVIUS, which is a Congress um, uh, Committee on foreign, in, uh, foreign Investment in the United States, where they oversee certain transactions for foreign companies that are investing, and they could block uh, those investment if it basically poses a national security issue. And Transportation Project has been put in uh, the, the category of potentially uh, a national security issue. A lot of these foreign investments that are coming in, Sovereign Wealth Fund and such, when they're investing, they want equity. We can't give public land, uh, just basically private uh, foreign companies' ownership of public lands. So basically that becomes part of the issue. And second, for these public transportation projects, sometimes we get matching grants from the federal government, and when that happens, you also have certain restriction in terms of getting foreign company. So most of those funding right now for this public infrastructure are actually completely self-financed. We're looking at public-private partnership model, but it's, uh, it's been challenging as well.
1: Well, we, we might move on if you don't mind, but I'm sure Stephen would, would be happy to engage afterwards. Thank you for, for waiting.
2: Uh, Tenei koutou katoa, um, I'm actually a UCLA graduate who's been living, right. in, yeah, I've been living and working in Auckland for 13 years and raising my children and hopefully a prosperous city. Um, my question is, we have this saying of kaitiakitangi, which is um, guardianship, and I teach in schools now. I graduated from the University of Auckland as a teacher and my question is regarding your incentives to private partnerships. So when you made that carbon neutral move, what were your relationships to the national government and to the local Los Angeles government to make that push
3: um, to incentivize private business to work with city to have the carbon neutral cars and have such a successful experience?
2: It was, uh, again, I summarize everything, the good, the bad, and ugly. It wasn't as smooth as I, I talked about. Actually, there was a lawsuit by the American Trucking Association that didn't agree with what we tried to do. It went all the way to Supreme Court. We lost certain component of it, and we won the majority of it, and we were able to force it through. So the environmental regulation actually kept in place, but there are certain components where we actually wanted um, the, the trucking industry uh, to provide health care, uh, for the independent owner-operated drivers, because since they're driving and they're not able to structure their own time, uh, many feel that they are now employees. If you're an employee, then you should have to pay for insurance and such. So that was the fight, and that was the fight that we lost in uh, um, the Supreme Court. However, the environmental issues were there. When it comes to incentives, what we did is this, uh, about air resource, because California, like I was saying, is so stringent on the environmental regulation that we decided that we have to invest uh, and create these incentive programs to make sure that we encourage other folks to invest that way too. So, we took a part of the state grants and we took a part of our revenue, combined it together to give these incentives to the private sector uh, because we need the carrot and the stick because most of the money will be borne by them. But later on, once we're able to correct the uh, uh, pollution issue and we're able to smooth out the process, we know that we're going to have increased capacity. We're grow- growing the port, but we're, uh, the, both ports, but we're growing it green and we're uh, lowering the carbon emission and the carbon footprints. So that way you're actually expediting the, the process and we're seeing an increase in the cargo that's coming in, producing more money for the local community. So it became a win-win situation but it's uh, if you look at the CTP, a clean truck program through the Port of Los Angeles and you can actually Google it and there's a whole uh, report about it. Um, Many sleepless nights, if you're, if you're not sleeping, you could read through it, but it's not a smooth process. None of these policies I talked about were ever smooth, and it took over 10 years to get to. I just have 20 minutes, so I summarized and gave you the, the rosy version.
1: Thank you very much, Stephen. Well, picking up on that theme of the, sort of the broader environmental and other concerns, I have a question here from um, Slido. Uh, are our indicators, when measuring the economic growth of a city, too focused on the financials and not enough on the physical and human geography. Yes. So, Stephen, if you'd like to answer that, or our other panelists, please, please go ahead.
2: Um, we agree completely. It can't just be the financial aspect, because if you uh, address only one issue, eventually it's gonna, the, the, the problems are gonna surface in another way. And that's why we had enough experience to, to understand that you have to really have a holistic and comprehensive solution. And because of that, we actually have a lot of regulations within the Los Angeles region in California that people feel are too onerous, and that's actually chasing some of the businesses away. And that many businesses are seeing as too punitive. So it's never uh, um, a win-win situation for us in many ways. And I think the model for many elected officials is that if you um, if you piss off everybody a little bit, you're actually winning. <laughs> if every you know, if only one party is happy, you're, you know you have other par- parties that are going to be very unhappy with you. So. Um, we what we do is when we look at any project development you actually have to have a community uh, component to it and we have systems in place where of neighborhood councils where if a project's going to go through you should get the uh, community's engagement and their approval before going forward to city council so there are multiple steps that are in place that makes the process extremely long and expensive mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons that we're not able to get development as quickly as possible to create the housing uh, uh, solution that we want however you know it's a cash 22 situation so we're really doing a good job because a lot of people are angry with the city uh, so unfortunately that's at, coming at the expense of overall not having enough housing but uh, when we do have housing projects a lot of times it actually takes care of the community members in many ways not every situation but I think there's a, a full uh, effort attempt to make sure that there are components of it that takes care of the community mm.
1: so maybe a kind of a long-term vision is, is really needed to address some of those that's issues right. I mean well-being is obviously a very hot topic in New Zealand. Uh, Nick or Tony, would you like to, to comment on that question? No? <laughs> uh,
3: well, the wellbeing budget, of course, is coming up on, uh, on May 30th. Um, and I wrote in my weekly commentary last week, don't come to us bank economists to give you great insight into whether what the government is doing there is likely to affect homelessness rate or anything like that because that's not where we're, you know, we've done our research over the years, but I guess what I'm looking to see from the well-being budget is the creation of a set of measures by which we can start to gain insight, actual insight into where the areas of greatest failing, lack of success may lie, and it's only when you get that sort of insight can you then start to direct Resources, even on an experimental basis, towards those areas of, of need, as opposed to just some sort of blanket approach to everybody around the country, etc. So I'm looking forward to measurements of these aspects of well-being that we can actually make some decisions on starting in the budget.
1: Great, thank you. A question from the audience, please. Uh,
2: thank you. Uh, I'm Gloria from the NSSD Foundation, formerly known as Chinese New Settlers Services Trust. And my question goes to uh, Stephen. uh, Actually, uh, your speech uh, is quite inspiring and informative because I knew that you started from social work and now you're quite an expert in economic development sector. So for our organization, actually, to achieve the successful development, we always want to develop some social enterprising on top of the social services development. So we want to check with you, can you share with us about some successful ex- uh, examples about the so- social enterprising uh, in Los Angeles? So are there any good examples that we can learn? Got it. Um, yeah. Yes, there are. Uh, it's always complex, so I'm trying to get you the, the simplest way to, to talk about um, uh, social enterprises that have actually been, been um, successful. Uh, so, um, In the redevelopment process of uh, downtown, um, there So we have to step back about 20, 25 years. Downtown Los Angeles, uh, after 4.30, you should not be there. (laughs) You should leave right away. Uh, It's not a very safe neighborhood. And the community and the city council decided they want to build um, a centralized location called LA Live, where it becomes the entertainment capital. Everybody was just laughing, saying, you're crazy. It's going to cost a lot of money, and you're going to put it in the middle of downtown? This is too scary. Uh, they did it, but the thing is they did it with a community engagement process as well, and they en- and encouraged uh, participation. Uh, speaking of the person who went to the LA 84 Olympics, just so you know, um, of all the modern history Olympics uh, that's been happening, Los Angeles 84 Olympics was the last and the only modern Olympics to be profitable, and that money basically became a foundation, and that foundation basically uh, contributed back, back to youth sports development program and produce. Uh, sports players like Venus and Serena Williams. So this foundation and their their efforts actually partnered with the development of the downtown area to make sure that there's access um, as they're developing. Some of the money goes back into the community so that they can feed into various programs with the community. So it's a long, complex process, but what they did is these um, uh, uh, major developers are working with local foundations and local partners and found them early on so that when they're proposing their project to city council as a full package, when we're developing this land and we're working on these projects, We're not only benefiting us, but their workforce development training program, plus community benefits benefits, uh, program for children and youth. So that way it becomes a community approach. Um, It doesn't satisfy everybody because some folks are very angry about the development of more traffic in the region. And so what if you're helping these kids with their after school program? You're actually creating more. So there's always uh, some, what we call NIMBY, not in my backyard. Uh, and it's a huge, huge issue in Los Angeles. So that's one quick example, and we have many more I could share with you offline uh, after this.
1: Thank you very much, Stephen. Um, I'm going to put a question from Slido now to Nick, if you don't mind. Um, The question is, Auckland is getting richer, but homelessness is on the increase. What do the panel think is the solution? And of course, we've heard some of the great innovative approaches that Los Angeles has used, but Nick, do you think any of those approaches work in Auckland? What's the answer for us?
0: Um, to, the, to the extent I can uh, you know, talk about homelessness, my understanding it is, it's actually a really complex issue in terms of trying to figure out the causes rather than the symptom of people just getting people off the streets, so why are they in the first place? And there's all sorts of uh, interventions that are possible around people um, not ending up on the streets and um, homeless. Um, I think one of the challenges, if I think about it from an Auckland Council point of view, is that it actually leads you into a whole lot of social policy that is not something that the Council really has a clear mandate and resources to tackle directly but having said that it's an issue that sort of uh, goes to the place we live in and so we are all affected by it daily so in many ways i think um, uh, i'm aware of uh, lots of trial programs and you know activities to to address homelessness the council itself uh, has recently developed a pilot around a bus that supports people who are homeless and so on. Um, I'm not answering the question. I do think one of the, the key steps in it, in addressing homelessness is, is much, is great, greater visibility, uh, greater sort of um, uh, understanding of the drives that lead to what is really a symptom rather than just getting people off the streets.
1: Yeah, Looks yeah. like you agree, Tony. Yeah, yeah. I'd
3: look to the example of the uh, Hamilton City Council. They, uh, their approach, I think it's over maybe a two or three year period, has been um, not to treat homelessness as a manifestation of some other problems that are going on. And it's no use trying to get these people greater sort of education, addressing mental health issues, dependency issues, unless you first of all address the homelessness side um, itself. Because if you just sort of address homelessness but don't address the other underlying issues, they'll be back there on the street um, pretty quickly and so they're looking at trying to address the homelessness, provide some sort of accommodation, but yet as soon as they've got those people into some regular sleeping place, they're working these other programs with them to try and get more towards the underlying factors which appear to have contributed to their their unfortunate situation. They seem to be having some success, that's pretty much all I know.
1: Anything to add, Steve?
2: The the comprehensive um, approach is actually necessary. What we call, uh, to your your point, um, we have something called the Housing First Program house them first. That's the first thing you need to basically provide shelter. But the thing is you also need comprehensive services. What we found is basically, there's an approach that basically, there's a let's place a homeless individual into housing. But there, if there are also underlying issues, like a long-term mental health issues, including schizophrenia, it becomes very difficult for them to stay in the housing. So also once they're in housing, there are also certain regulations and certain requirements. For example, they can't use substances. But for someone with um, uh, substance abuse issues, uh, an addiction. It's very hard for them to get out, so now you're just forcing them out of the, on, on the streets again. So that's why we want to do a wraparound approach, uh, doing comprehensive services. But you can imagine, housing, mental health, drug uh, uh, counselling, all these supportive services cost a lot of money. For 50,000 individual, it's uh, it's going to be a huge issue for us to solve. So um, all I can say is we're trying. We don't have a handle on it yet, but we're actually trying to learn from other cities and other solutions as well.
1: But it also underscores, I guess, that growth piece. We've got to get that right first to be able to achieve these other broader goals. No, yes, we are don't. you saying
3: get economic growth, and these other things will be improved? Not. No.
1: Not as night follows the day. But if we don't have the resources to to address some of those challenges. That's obviously a very difficult exercise.
3: No, that won't work. Um, I mean, I I have no history of studying inclusive growth. I only came across the concept between last Wednesday, I found I had the time to start preparing. For, for this evening. And so, oh my God, inclusive growth, what what is that? And so I've spent sort of the weekend going through uh, various papers, Brookings Institute, academic um, um, papers, etc., looking at the idea of inclusive growth, which really only sort of popped up as a term from about 2009. And it's risen because over the past 30 years, we've seen an increase in inequality within countries, not internationally, but within con- countries. And it's concentrated in the cities. And the bigger the city, the greater the growth in inequality. Now, the economic growth we're getting around the planet now Uh, is focused in the cities. You can call them agglomerations or whatever. Growth with the technological revolution that we're living through is increasingly concentrated within cities. It will be more so in the future. But the growth in the cities is leading to increasing inequalities out there. And unless uh, one actually develops some sort of programs for specifically addressing those that are left behind, then the economic growth itself will actually simply leave more people behind. And you get increasing stratification of incomes, which are then distributed by stratification of urban locations as well. You get people who are living in the richer areas and the people who can't afford there, they're pushed either further and further out or essentially in some you know, New Zealand version of a ghetto, etc. So economic growth by itself will not lead to a solution. And as I say, especially for the Auckland city situation, economic growth itself, it's gonna generate more PAYE, GST and company tax. That goes to the central government not the local government. So it doesn't necessarily lead to a great increase in the resources available for socially-oriented programs. Well,
1: I think we're in vigorous agreement. We definitely need both sides. Now, we've got time for one final quick question, if there's anybody desperate to, uh, to put it to our panel. Thank you, sir.
4: Oh. Well, this this bloke's bloke be waiting
3: for a while, and then we'll get the microphone okay. to, your, to yourself.
4: Hi, uh, Nigel, and, uh, okay, yeah, Nigel, and, um, I am uh, an employee in a company of 500 people here in Auckland, and which proudly says there are at least 40 nationalities in that uh, company. So I understand a little bit about diversity. I've been to Los Angeles, 1971, and many times since. Lived in Auckland for the last 40 years. I have seen the enormous growth in both cities. I agree entirely what Stephen has said about um, what is happening here, Auckland being a kind of a mirror of Los Angeles but smaller. But of all those slides, Stephen, that I saw, the one that sort of concerned me most was the one of the entire country. You showed on the west corner, or the west side, was Los Angeles. Big, dark space. Then almost all of the rest of the country to the east is almost empty. Um, And my question is, do you think you need to bring the rest of the country along with the Los Angeles story? Um, are you doing anything about bringing the rest of the country along with the Los Angeles story? Do you think it's necessary to do that?
2: We would love to lead by example. Um, I think DC needs to bring the rest of the United States together and unite us. Uh, so. I, what we can do is, because we don't have the jurisdiction to to mandate and, and lecture other states and other regions, um, they all have their own unique uh, individuality and that's why we respect, respect them. What we're trying to do is show that our way uh, of inclusivity and working tr- together and embracing diversity is actually helping our economy grow and we want to share that pie with everybody else because a lot of times, LA might not be the right region for them. They actually need to reach a Chicago market. They actually need to reach a Kentucky market. So please go there, but sometimes they're facing issues. Uh, I was working with a, uh, an investor um, and they brought their company into another state. I'm not going to w- name which state and they also have uh, an open carry rule which means they can carry their gun. Um, this family moved there uh, with a the company. Uh, they sent me a picture because uh, apparently this grocery store where this person didn't like the look of immigrants in their neighborhood, so he flashed his gun uh, with a with wife and a and young child there, so they were so nervous that they decided to quit that company and um, move to Los Angeles. <laughs> so I think uh, it's a lesson learned is that basically uh, so, sometimes um, with immigrant population coming in and for Los Angeles with embracing it because we're an immigrant uh, region, but some other regions are not quite there yet, and we can't force them to, so we're showing them the way, but now they're looking at, a lot of folks are looking at us like we're the, the elite of the East and West Coast, and they can't relate to us. Um, I don't agree with that. I think we, we can be one, but it's just we need to communicate effectively, but sometimes, let's be honest, we can be a bit smug, so um, it comes off uh, uh, rubbing off the wrong way with some of the other countries. But I think overall, uh, Los Angeles would love to work very closely with the rest of the United States that we can share that prosperity with everybody else.
1: Well, thanks so much. Sadly, we have run out of time for more questions, but I'm sure we could, we could be here all night with these three fantastic speakers. I think we've heard a lot tonight about the importance of embracing diversity, of trying to ensure um, that we bring all of our communities along with us. The importance in particular of infrastructure, I think has been a theme that we've heard all the way through the the comments tonight. Um, And as part of that picture, of course, we need to generate the right sort of investment, whether locally or or from overseas. So it's been a fantastic discussion, and um, I'd like to thank our three panellists, and and in particular, Stephen, for his great keynote address. Um, Could you please join me in thanking Stephen Chung, (laughs) Nick Hill, and Tony Alexander. And I think the panellists will also join me in thanking you all for coming out tonight and making this a great conversation. Um, And also, of course, to those watching online, we really appreciate your generosity in joining in to try and find some solutions to these challenges. Now, our next Auckland Conversations will be on making Auckland an age-friendly city, bit of a change of pace there. Um, So if you'd like to come along, we would love to welcome you there. It will be happening on the 13th of June at the Crown Plaza. And if you'd like more information about that or any other upcoming Auckland Council events, please go to the Auckland Conversations website. And meanwhile, um, Naomi, thank you so much for coming tonight and enjoy the rest of your evening.
0: You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information visit our website conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios.